Welcome to Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. Searching for Monsieur Guillaudot. Curiosity got the better of our curator Adrian after reading another of P.T. Barnum's letters, in which he mentioned the Frenchman who worked for him at the American Museum, plus a letter directly to him responding to concerns about his salary. She had already learned a few things about this gentleman that made him a person of interest. One, he was the taxidermist for the museum and its chief naturalist, a significant job considering the vast number of specimens on exhibit and the rarity of many, not to mention the live animals that sooner or later died and needed to be mounted. Two, Barnum appeared to like him personally. And three, Barnum trusted him enough to suggest to his wife Charity that she ask for his help in finding a French girl of daughter Caroline's age who would board with her at school, Barnum's idea being that this arrangement would help Caroline become proficient in the language. Adrian was interested to see what else she could learn about this man, who was to become the museum's longest-serving employee, having worked there from the time it was Scudder's American Museum until Barnum's American Museum was no more in 1868. But what exactly was this gentleman's surname? She had seen various spellings in Barnum's letters, as well as references to Émile Guillaudot in books about Barnum, 
noting his very important role at the museum, which, despite today's popular notion that it was all about faked objects and hoaxes, was actually dominated by natural history specimens, art, and historical items. Serving as the director of the natural history exhibits was thus a key position, and she discovered that even a historical novel published in 2011 had fashioned one of its two main characters after Barnum's naturalist, Emile Guiadeau. What a great name for a character in a novel. Trying searches with the different spellings turned up even more variants of the name, but little useful information. However, she did find two records pertaining to U.S. passport applications under the name Emily Guiadeau. Though she was certain Emily, spelled I-E at the end, was a woman's name, it was worth investigating because one never knows when a name might have been misinterpreted or misspelled. In this case, both the first and last names were likely candidates for errors. An extra I slipped into the fairly common French man's name Emile would become Emily, and as she had already discovered, there were multiple spellings of the surname. What luck! Upon the first click, she found a passport application letter dated January 8, 1844, listing not just Emily Guiadeau, but also P.T. Barnum, Sherwood E. Stratton and his wife Cynthia, Charles S. Stratton, alias General Tom Thumb, and George Ciprico. This was documentation of Barnum's preparation for his first European tour, in fact, his first trip abroad with General Tom Thumb, the very trip we are learning about in the copybook letters. The first document is a simple unsigned letter requesting passports for those individuals, and was probably written by or for Edward Curtis, head of the collections office in New York at that time. This was determined after seeing the second document, the Register of Passports Granted by A.P. Upshur, Secretary of State. Curtis's request was received by the Secretary of State's office on January 11, 1844, which was only a week, yikes, before the group set sail for England. In the Register of Passports, the first four columns record the name and title of the person making the request, in this case Curtis, the date received, the passport number assigned, sequentially, and the person to whom the passport was sent. Here, we see that Barnum was issued passport number 1801. Mr. and Mrs. Stratton were issued a single passport, 1802, as was the custom when a wife was traveling with her husband. And Charles Stratton received his own number, 1803, which seems odd considering his youth and the presence of his parents. Emily Guiadeau was issued passport 1804. The absence of a number for George Ciprico indicates that he did not get his own passport, since 1805 was assigned to the next person, who was not part of the Curtis request. According to Barnum in his 1855 autobiography, George Ciprico was Charles Stratton's tutor, though he seems to have been replaced by a Mr. Sherman during the period of the letters we are reading. Ciprico may therefore have been accounted for through Charles's passport, According to the National Archives, it was common practice in that era to do this for servants traveling with their employer. As thrilling as it was to find documents directly related to Barnum's first trip to Europe, Adrian's excitement escalated when she saw that physical descriptions were included in the register. The year 1844 was, of course, long before durable forms of paper-based photography were in use, 
So personal identification took the form of a detailed description of the individual. The information needed to be more than the basics of hair and eye color, height, and weight. Ten columns are thus devoted to describing individuals by age, stature, height, forehead, eyes, nose, mouth, chin, hair, complexion, and face, shape. Remembering that the name listed was written as Emily Guillaudot, not Emile Guillaudot, Adrian looked for confirmation of gender, but curiously the register did not include a column to record male or female. She thought the stature column might help identify, if not prove, that Emily was actually a man, but with a listed height of 5 feet 4 inches, it seemed uncertain. While that is an average height for a woman, it is certainly below average for a man. At age 44, Emily was 11 years older than Barnum and is described as having a prominent forehead, dark hazel eyes, an ordinary nose, medium mouth, round chin, black hair, dark complexion, and oval face. The prominent forehead and black hair, as opposed to being described as dark brown, sounded more likely to be masculine features, though not necessarily so. And it would make far more sense that Monsieur Emile Guillaudot, not a female Emily, accompanied Barnum and the Strattons on this important trip. In fact, referring again to Barnum's autobiography, Life of P.T. Barnum, page 246, Adrian was able to confirm that Monsieur Guillaudot did go on this voyage. Therefore, Curtis or his staff member had penned the name with errors first and last, which were then repeated on the Registry of Passports. As the man in charge of all the natural history displays at the American Museum, Monsieur Guillaudot would gain opportunities in London to acquire new specimens for the collection, and perhaps even return with an exotic animal or two. And how could the Frenchman not visit Paris while abroad? In fact, he went on ahead of Barnum and the Strattons, as is mentioned in a brief story in the autobiography, page 261, wherein General Tom Thumb was pleased to tell the Belgian queen that he would be meeting Monsieur Guillaudot in Paris. She had expected him to say the King of the French, who was her father. But we know he did not continue on with Barnum through the countryside of France, because there are short messages for Guillaudot included in some of the September to October 1845 copybook letters, as well as one letter written directly to him. He must have returned to New York well before then, being a trustworthy individual known to Barnum, perhaps he accompanied Barnum's wife and young daughters on their voyage home in June, when General Tom Thumb's entourage was ready to leave Paris and move on. In a letter dated September 28th to American Museum manager Fortis Hitchcock, Barnum asked to be remembered to Friend Guillaudot and promised he would send that dictionary and bird's eyes or bring them by and by. On October 12th, he let Hitchcock know they'd been sent, noting, The bird's eyes for Guillaudot were put in case number eight. In the same letter, he recommends that Hitchcock consult with Guillaudot on the matter of Peel's museum, and what amount they felt best to offer, a suggestion that certainly indicates confidence in his judgment. Undoubtedly, Guillaudot's years of experience with natural history collections and purchasing specimens for the museum were valuable to Barnum. On the matter of trust, we should note that back in 1842, when Barnum asked Guillaudot to assess the Fiji mermaid he planned to rent from showman Moses Kimball, Guillaudot told Barnum it was manufactured, despite the lack of evidence of artifice. 
Asked why he thought so, he flatly told Barnum it was because he did not believe in mermaids. Imagine how that sounded, his emphatic pronouncement with a French accent. Fast forward to 1845, when a letter from Barnum to his uncle Allenson Taylor on September 27th tells us that Guillaudot had returned from Europe to an upgraded workspace at the museum. Barnum explained to Taylor that the reason the museum's profits were not higher during the summer was only because of expenses being great for Swift, who had been hired to carry out projects such as arranging dissolving views, a camera obscura on the rooftop, and building a new shop for Guillaudot. Guillaudot must have described these changes to Barnum, whose reply to my good friend Guillaudot on October 12th states, I am glad to hear so good a report from you regarding improvements in the museum, and if my life and health are spared, I shall soon have the pleasure of seeing for myself. As to the matter of salary that Guillaudot had written to Barnum about, Barnum assured him that Hitchcock had been given the authority for handling such matters while he, Barnum, was in Europe. He wrote, I would advise you to speak to him candidly and lay all the facts before him, and then he, as my agent, will increase your salary if he thinks that it would be just and right for him to do so, acting as he is between man and man. I want no man's services for less than their real value, and he knows it, but he must in my absence be the sole judge in the matter. Please speak to him at once. Barnum closed by thanking him for the French paragraph. I understand it perfectly. But, my dear fellow, I can't speak French much, and I dare not try write it at all. And now, I have no doubt you would like to know about the physical descriptions of Barnum and the others as described in the Register of Passports. So, here goes. Barnum, age 33, is listed as 5 feet 10 and a quarter inches tall, with a medium forehead, dark eyes, prominent nose, small mouth, round chin, brown hair, a light and florid complexion, and oval face. Of Mr. and Mrs. Stratton, only he, age 33, is described. At five feet eight and a quarter inches tall, his forehead was high, his eyes dark, his nose rather short, his mouth ordinary and chin round, his hair dark brown, complexion dark and florid, and face oval. The description of the couple's son Charles is abbreviated, giving only his age, height, and weight. His listed age, 12, is consistent with Barnum's advertising that claims his age at six years older than he actually was in order to make his diminutive stature seem all the more remarkable. In reality, Charles had just turned six on January 4th, four days before Curtis's application letter was written. His height is noted as 1 foot 10 inches and his weight as 15 pounds 2 ounces, which seems reasonably correct, as best we know, for that time in his life. George Ciprico, his tutor, was 22 years old and stood 5 feet 9.5 inches tall, with a medium forehead, chestnut eyes, straight nose, and well-proportioned mouth, round chin, dark brown hair, dark complexion, and oval face. So, this search for Monsieur Guillaudot has turned into a sidebar related to the Barnum copybook letters. That said, we're certainly happy to have come across the documents relating to the 1844 voyage preparations, and what an unexpected bonus they provided with physical descriptions of Barnum and his fellow travelers. As for the misspelling of Emile that led us there, it reminds us that casting a wide net and investigating anomalies can pay off. 
The things inside case number eight. Earlier, we got to know a little more about the American Museum's naturalist and taxidermist, Monsieur Emile Guillaudot, a man whom Barnum valued and trusted. Having traveled on the outbound voyage to England in January of 1844 with P.T. Barnum and General Tom Thumb and his parents, Sherwood and Cynthia Stratton, he returned to New York City in the summer of 1845, when Tom Thumb and his entourage finished performing in Paris and were going on to other cities and towns. A few of Barnum's copybook letters mention getting bird's eyes for Guillaudot, meaning taxidermist's glass eyes for use in taxidermy. Presumably, French-made bird's eyes were the best quality. Upon purchasing them, Barnum shipped them to New York, tucked in among his own possessions. Twice, he stated that the bird's eyes were put in case number eight, so that Guillaudot, or museum manager Fortis Hitchcock, would know where to find them. Very likely, the case was more on the order of a shipping crate. But I bet that Monsieur Guillaudot is not the only one with a great interest in case number eight. We, too, are dying to poke around inside that crate, albeit in our imagination. Actually, there's more than inquisitiveness involved. This is curatorial research. Some of the very items the Barnum Museum has in its collection, given by Barnum descendants, were purchased by him in Paris during this tour and sent home to America. It so happened that while Barnum was in Paris, the estate of a Russian prince who had lived in that city and recently passed away was put up for auction. Curiosity and an abundance of spare cash drew Barnum to the auction, where he acquired many exquisite treasures for the home he planned to build in Bridgeport. Since the Royal Pavilion in Brighton was to serve as a model for his home-to-be, he undoubtedly felt that its decor should reflect the aesthetic of wealthy Europeans. Initially, Adrian had high hopes of reading about Barnum's purchases in the copybook, but since the letters in that volume begin after Barnum left Paris, she soon realized she had missed the auction. Darn. That said, we do know something about the auction from another source. Were it not for the coat of arms on some of the prince's possessions, however, we might not have learned the story behind Barnum's purchases, which is included in the book Funny Stories Told by Phineas T. Barnum, see pages 245 and 246. The auction, held in the palatial home of the late prince, attracted the wealthy and elite of Paris and London, who were eager to acquire rare and costly items. But when it came to bidding on items ornamented with the coat of arms, well, they were no longer so eager. After all, why would they, who had their own family crests, want to possess objects displaying another family's heraldry? As the story goes, Barnum thereupon seized the opportunity to purchase many fine items of silver, gold, and porcelain, so decorated, as he did not have a coat of arms and was not averse to adopting one. Having grown up in the conservative, plain-living town of Bethel, Connecticut, Barnum's exposure to the grandeur of royalty and the aristocracy in England, Belgium, and France had certainly awakened a taste for lavish interiors and furnishings. And he surely calculated that American visitors to his home would hardly care whose coat of arms adorned his china and silver, only that it was very impressive and European. Barnum even went so far as to put the coat of arms on his own carriage. But let's get back to case number eight, where Barnum noted, The bird's eyes for Guido were put with my plated dinner service. Now that's what we're interested in. 
I have to believe that some of the items in that crate and others were the very pieces now in the museum's collection. So do Barnum's copybook letters provide any more clues about them post-auction? A letter dated October 12th tells us about the nuisance of getting the precious acquisitions into the U.S. Somewhat apologetically, Barnum wrote to Hitchcock, I am sorry that my things have given so much trouble to you and the Custom House. I gave the list of contents just as the man who packed them in Paris gave them to me. However, there could be no error about the cost of the things, for I sent you the bills of the most of them, indeed all of which were of any consequence. My cases were shipped about 1st July, and I suppose they reached America and passed the Custom House by middle of August. Most of the stuff was second-handed and ought not to have paid duty. How much duty did you pay? Suddenly, all the beautiful treasures became second-hand goods. I guess he was right, even if that isn't how we think of them today, nor likely did he. Barnum explained, The fact is I bought my stuff mostly at auction and at different days, as the bills show. Then it was all stowed away in the hotel at Paris. Most of it was re-gilded and repaired and returned to the hotel. The packers then went to work and packed it, I fear, without any regard to the bills or anything except the safety of the articles. Still, they told me they were packed just as I wrote you. So there are a couple of things to unpack, pardon the pun, in Barnum's statement above. His mention of the re-gilding, reapplication of a thin gold layer, and repair of items is notable. The gold coffee set that Barnum referred to in Funny Stories is almost certainly the magnificent gilt silver tea service now at the Barnum Museum and includes a very large round tray, a samovar for heating water, and a teapot, creamer, lidded sugar bowl, and waste bowl for the used tea leaves. The exterior surfaces of these pieces appear now as a warm silver color, having lost much of the gold, while the interior surfaces display a distinct yellow-gold wash. Since a gilt silver surface has only a thin gold overlay, cleaning and polishing wears away the gold over time, and this may also have been the case when Barnum acquired the set in 1845, prompting him to have it re-gilded. That seems straightforward enough, but the re-gilding and repair may also refer to the French porcelain dinner service Barnum bought, which had been made in the early 1800s by Darte Frere, in English Darte Brothers. Each piece of the snow-white china is elegantly decorated with bands of gold and the owner's initials in gold, as well as the handsome coat of arms. The Barnum Museum has many pieces from this dinner service, though not the entire set. We had long puzzled over the initials PTB on each piece. Supposedly, the initials of the prints, P and T, had caught Barnum's attention, because he would only need to add a B to transform them to his own. However, the fact that the three letters are always perfectly centered on each piece of the dinnerware seemed to discount the story if the change was accomplished by simply adding a letter. The truth of that tale was uncertain. A few years ago, we decided to try and find out exactly who this Russian prince in Paris was, since Barnum did not mention the man's name in his story and we were curious to know if, in fact, the initials were P.T. The Barnum Museum's former archivist Megan Wrynn took on the challenge. She located online the Russian Empire Roll of Arms, published in 1797, and found that the crest seen on Our China and Silver belonged to the Tufyakin family, who held the noble rank of Prince, 
the highest rank one could have without being a member of the royal family. It turns out that the last member of the family to use the crest was Peter Ivanovich, who lived from 1769 to 1845. He died in February of 1845 with no heirs. He spent the last 20 years of his life living in Paris, opposite the Opera House, and he was deeply interested in the theater and had done much to support it in Moscow. Meg also turned up a catalog for the sale of Prince Tyofyakin's extensive library and located a couple of paintings with a history of ownership by this man. She did not, however, find an auction catalog of the decorative arts. There is a question as to whether the original initials on the china were in Cyrillic or the Roman alphabet, but since the dinner service was made in Paris for a Russian who was making his home in Paris, the latter seems more likely. And if the story about the initials catching Barnum's eye is true, then the latter would have been the case. Whether the regilding and repair of most of the items purchased refers to both the gilt silver tea service and the china is hard to say, but it is reasonable to think Barnum would have had the initials on the china changed while in Paris rather than after his return to America. It is intriguing, even charming in its way, that Barnum adopted a coat of arms that had just become obsolete, and it wasn't a short-lived whim. He continued using it for several years, and even included it on the very sizable California gold ring he had made at the time of the 49 gold rush. He also added a personally meaningful motto which surrounds the crest, Love God and Be Merry. And he went a step further. A coat of arms would traditionally only be applied to something of real value and consequence, but Barnum democratized his and shared it with the public. The evidence? The museum has a Jenny Lind concert ticket made of red cardstock, which has the Prince's crest and Barnum's motto embossed in one corner. If only Prince Peter Ivanovich Tyufyakin, a man who was devoted to supporting the theater and opera, knew that his family crest found a niche in the Swedish Sopranos' American concert tour. Curiosities for the American Museum Advertisements for Barnum's American Museum always note the many thousands of curiosities that visitors could see once they had paid to enter, like a new world laid out before them. Were these curiosities the humbugs, often erroneously called hoaxes, that so many people associate with P.T. Barnum? The answer is no, not many. In Barnum's day, curiosities had a broader meaning, encompassing virtually anything that was unfamiliar or unusual. While today the word conjures images of very strange or supremely unusual objects, either peculiar by nature or oddities and relics of human creation, for Barnum, the countless items in the natural history collection and the historical objects at the museum were all bona fide curiosities. But Barnum intended to do more than just display curiosities. He also wanted to entice ordinary people to want to learn about the world, to be curious, to question, and to enjoy the discovery process. So, to spice things up, Humbugs and fakes found their way in among the displays of legitimate specimens, artifacts, and art. These were intended to provoke conversation, and perhaps spark debate or moments of amusement among visitors. In other words, pique people's curiosity through a visceral response. 
Barnum knew that his success depended upon making visitors' experiences at the museum memorable, just the same as today. We have highlighted his acquisitions of impressive and showy items for the museum while he was in France, things like automatons, huge panoramas, and unusual live animals. Now we will explore other kinds of purchases he hoped to make on the 1845 tour. Barnum did not neglect the chance to add new specimens to the museum's natural history collection and more objects to the ancient relics and archaeological collections. He also sought to have copies made of historical paintings. Since Barnum was the advance man for General Tom Thumb's tour, he was in a position to scout opportunities and then send instructions to his employees in the general's entourage. Citing the leisure time he expected they'd have after taking care of the tour responsibilities, he suggested items they should seek out and purchase, though only if the appearance of such things was striking and the prices reasonable. The players in this story are Mr. Sherman, an antiquarian and young Charles Stratton's preceptor, or tutor, Sherwood Stratton, who was Charles's father, and according to Barnum, a person with no intellectual curiosity whatsoever, and Monsieur Pinte, a well-educated Frenchman hired as the interpreter for the Strattons and others, and who apparently was considering creating his own show or museum, despite bristling at the thought of being called a showman. We will also discover a bit more about Monsieur Emile Guillaudot, the American Museum's naturalist and taxidermist who was discussed earlier. Writing to Mr. Sherman on October 16th from Lyon, Barnum directed him thus, I have been thinking that at those shops in the Quay in Marseille, where they have so many birds and shells for sale, that undoubtedly you can pick up plenty of bird skins ready for old Guillaudot's use to stuff. Please inquire. And if you can get from 30 to 100 skins of different African birds, say three pairs of each kind, which are pretty or odd, and which we have probably not already got in the museum, you may get them provided they do not cost too much. They should not average over three francs each skin, and probably may be got for half the money. The living birds are sold in Marseille for three francs each when a person buys 20 or 30. He went on to caution, don't buy for the sake of buying. Merely buy if they are pretty and new. I mean new in New York. And even then, don't pay too much. Mr. Stratton was to provide Sherman with the funds for the purchases, which Barnum would later reimburse. Since Sherman's expertise was not in biological specimens, Barnum suggested that he soft-soap the naturalist at the museum so as to get a solid couple of hours of his time assessing the bird skins, noting the naturalist's judgment is worth much more than both of ours on this subject. However, he added that Sherman should look out that he don't shave you. Barnum also advised taking interpreter Pinta with him, not only to ensure he understood the naturalist, but also because the lesson will help Pinta toward starting his show in France. From a present-day museum professional's perspective, Barnum's next advisory, in a postscript to his October 20th letter to Sherman, is rather jarring. I wish you and Mr. Showman Pinta would stroll into the museum and have a talk with the manager. And if you can buy some Roman antiquities cheap, get me some which are good and striking, say from 40 to 200 francs worth. But don't buy unless you think it is an object. Clearly, there was no museum code of ethics. Barnum also recommended stopping into some old curiosity shops along the quay in Marseille, where might be purchased 
Roman remains or old sabers or arms. In a more collegial vein regarding the museum visit, Barnum recommended that Sherman also talk to the manager about exchanging curiosities for something which can be found in America. Learn what he wants from America, whether he wants the skin of a moose, a buffalo, and what other American animals or birds. In addition, Barnum saw an opportunity to get the museum director to facilitate a purchase in case Sherman was unable to persuade or negotiate with the seller himself. He counseled, Among the birds of paradise in the museum, I saw a couple of that species, which appeared like rich velvet. They are entirely new to me. The porter of the museum said there was a person in town who had one to sell. If you can get the director to procure it, you may go as high as 75 francs for it, or even 100 francs if you can't do better. I hope, however, you can get it for 25 to 30, and guess you can get it for less than 50. If any or all of these transactions were successful, I suspect Monsieur Guillaudeau had plenty of work ahead for him to mount the skins, and possibly having to get an American moose or buffalo hide for the French Museum. The October 20th letter also provides some interesting tidbits about Guillaudeau's family, as Barnum was supposed to meet his employee's nephew in Lyon. Barnum wrote Sherman, Guillaudeau's nephew is out of town, as it is vacation. He is a student of the School of Painting, which is also in the museum. Barnum thus missed meeting him, but anticipating that Sherman's arrival in Lyon would coincide with the nephew's return to art school, he added, He will be in town and call on you. Give him my compliments and tell him I am sorry I could not have seen him. He will hand you a couple of family pictures for Monsieur Guillaudeau. His name is Yassante Chevalier. Here again, Barnum saw an opportunity. Why not ask the young art student to make copies of paintings displayed at the museum, which could then be shipped back to the American Museum. Copying masterpieces was a traditional method by which artists learned to paint. Barnum thereby instructed Sherman, Look at the three following paintings in the museum and ask him, Chevalier, or the manager or both, what I must pay for a good copy of each. 1. The Deluge. 2. Cain running after murdering Abel. 3. Cain in the desert, or somewhere else, with his family after killing Abel. They are all striking pictures, and if Chevalier won't charge much to copy them, I'll have them. Ask the price. It is possible that the first painting Barnum listed was the work of Irish artist Francis Danby, 1793-1861, who painted an intensely dramatic scene of the biblical flood. It was first exhibited in 1840. There are, of course, other paintings also titled The Deluge, but this one being relatively new in 1845 and being the sensational and stirring sort of depiction that Barnum would have wanted for his museum leads us to think he was referring to Danby's painting. The Deluge is now in the collection of the Tate Gallery in London. We don't have an answer at this point as to whether Chevalier took Barnum up on the offer to pay for copies of the paintings, but un petit encadré, or a little sidebar here, we did learn from other sources that Chevalier went on to become a professional artist, a sculptor, not a painter, and that he lived and worked in Paris until his death in 1893. He is best known for his work on the Théâtre de la Porte de Saint-Martin in Paris. After the original 18th-century theater and opera house was destroyed by fire during the Paris Commune of 1871, the architect in charge of its replacement hired Chevalier to do the elaborate façade and design the interior. 
Take a good look at the photo linked in the show notes. You'll see four full-length figures at the entrance and a myriad of faces throughout the facade, including a row along the roofline. The thought comes to mind that Yassinthe Chevalier and his uncle Emile Guillaudot would really have enjoyed seeing our Barnum Museum building in Bridgeport, Connecticut, with its beautifully intricate facade, and among the abundant details, a variety of faces and animals. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinnow and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.